Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. So church, I would invite the congregation not to stand, to remain sitting, and please turn to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a book in the Bible. It is in the Old Testament, in the latter half of the Old Testament. If you're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you go left. If you're in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Isaiah, Daniel, you go right. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. You word as a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Question. Have you ever struggled with God? Have you ever become impatient with him? Have you ever raised a fist at heaven and said, Hey, God, why don't you actually do something? If you've ever asked all of those questions, then you are going to love the book of Habakkuk. Because in the book of Habakkuk, the prophet of the same name wrestles with God. And wrestling with God means it's not a physical match where blows and suplexes are done. It's a psychological, spiritual struggle where wrestling with God means asking him, why, God, why? Wrestling means asking questions that express troubled doubts because you lack clarity and meaningful answers. As a result, in the book of Habakkuk, we see the journey of a prophet, we see the journey of a godly person as he tries to comprehend the ways of God. Now let's make sure we understand the context of the book of Habakkuk. The book is very unique because it does not contain any message for a people. It doesn't contain an oracle for the nation of Israel. The book of Habakkuk is a conversation between one man and God. And it's the only book in the Bible where the prophet speaks more than God. Habakkuk has questions. Habakkuk is confused. Habakkuk is frustrated. And now he brings all of those frustrations and wants to have an adult conversation with God about life. So how does the book of Habakkuk start? Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw 
How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. This is a summary of what Habakkuk says in the opening verses. He looks at the world around him, and he looks at the God that's spoken about in the Word of God. He analyzes the God of the Bible, and there's a disconnect. He looks at the world around him and sees immorality, injustice, and deceit. He looks at the scriptures and sees a God of truth, light, justice, and righteousness. And he's trying to understand how can these things be? How can there be so much darkness in the world when God is a God of light? And what is the first thing that Habakkuk does? He brings all of those questions to who? To God himself. The first line of the book is, how long, O Lord, will I call for help? Who is he calling for help to? God himself. He doesn't Google his question. He doesn't watch a YouTube video about it. He doesn't ask the guy on the street who may have went to Sunday school when he was five. He doesn't poll people to find out what their thoughts on the matter are. He has issues with God. So he takes his questions to God's doorstep, which already Habakkuk has given us a valuable lesson. Because if you have a problem with God and there's a disconnect between the world that you see and the God that you think you know, response number one could be, you could throw your hands up in the air and say, forget about this God business. Forget about this Bible business. And now you turn your back on God and walk away. Now you're forced to try and figure life out by yourself. Response number two could be, you could with your mouth say things like, I'm waiting on God. You could with your mouth say things like, I'm going to let God's will be God's will. But on the inside, you really don't like God. On the inside, you're confused. On the inside, you're frustrated. On the inside, things don't make much sense. But what Habakkuk does is he takes all of those doubts and frustrations and he takes it directly to God in pursuit of clarity and he begins to wrestle with God. Now, here's the first question Habakkuk has in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. He asks God this main question. Why do you allow evil to exist and do nothing about it? Why do you allow sin? Why do you allow immorality? Why do you allow badness? Why do you allow all of this deplorable wickedness to run rampant in the world, but do nothing about it? 
Habakkuk was a Jew in the kingdom of Judah, in the area around modern-day Jerusalem. He was looking at his fellow countrymen, people who biologically were Jews, who based on their biology were covenantal people of God. These were people who were knew God, who knew what God did in the Exodus, who actually knew what was right and what was wrong. But in spite of that, the people were living their lives as if God didn't exist. And Habakkuk wanted to know why God, why? And Habakkuk isn't so much concerned over the fact that people were behaving badly. He was more so concerned over the fact that God wasn't doing anything about it. He says in verses 1 to 4, how long will you not hear? How long will you not save? Because here's Habakkuk's dilemma. He actually knows in his heart of hearts that God is good. He actually knows in his heart of hearts that God is true. He actually believes that God is righteous, and that's why he has a problem. If God was an evil tyrant and you saw evil in the world, you would say, oh, it must be just another week. But because Habakkuk knew that the holy God of the Bible, Yahweh, was really in charge, he was trying to figure out how all of these things could be. Now, when you are wrestling with God, here is the first point. Point number one. When you are wrestling with God, gain some perspective. Point number one is gain some perspective. Habakkuk's perspective in the opening verses of his book is very narrow. His view of reality is centered on himself, and he's judging the world in which he sees based upon a very, very, very teeny, tiny, narrow view of everything. To validate that, look at how many times Habakkuk uses the first-person pronoun in verses 1 to 4. He says, how long, O Lord, will I cry for help? I cry out to you violence, and how long will you cause me to look on wickedness. From Habakkuk's very self-centered perspective, it seems as if he has the impression as if God isn't doing anything and God is doing a bad job of handling reality. But when you are wrestling with God, we have to gain some perspective. God's perspective is not narrow. God's perspective is never, is never limited to one person. God's perspective is cosmic. He can not only see what's going on with you, he can see what's going on with everyone else on planet Earth. And... He can also see everything that led up to this point and everything that's going to lead out of that point. The problem with the narrow perspective is that you don't have all of the data and you don't have all of the facts at hand. As a result, your perspective of reality is very limited. 
So because of a narrow perspective, Habakkuk thinks God isn't doing anything. He thinks God isn't hearing him. He thinks that God has abandoned his faithful people. But in the Bible, the Bible tells us when it seems as if God has abandoned his people from a very narrow perspective, that abandonment is not real. Case in point, there was a 400-year gap in between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New. Guess what? In those 400 years, there was prophetic silence. There were no Jeremiah's. There were no Malachi's. There were no Isaiah's. If you were living in that gap, someone could say, it seems as if I have the perspective as if God has abandoned his people based on that narrow view. But when we zoom out now and look at what happened in history, did God abandon his people? He didn't. Although there may have been prophetic silence, he was working every second of every day to prepare the world for the most important event in human history, the birth of Jesus Christ. The abandonment wasn't real. It only seemed that way from a very narrow perspective. And realize this. Habakkuk cries out to God and says, How long, O Lord, will you not hear me? Do you not see what's going on? Whenever we think God doesn't hear us or that God can't see, realize God can always see more than you can. He can always hear more than your prayers. He can always see more than what's going on in your corner of reality. That doesn't demean any human being. That just puts our view in perspective. God is always doing something, but just because we can't sense it doesn't mean it's not real. Everyone here in this church is hearing the word of God preached today. There's a chance you may not see someone saved today. Does that mean the word of God is void? Does that mean the word of God is useless? Absolutely not, because I guarantee you, Somewhere on God's green earth at this very moment, someone is hearing the preached word of God, and that word is turning their heart from sin to repentance. You may not see a miracle today. You may not see someone go from being on the verge of death to full, vibrant life. But guess what? That doesn't mean that in the middle of nowhere, somewhere, someone cries out to their maker and says, Lord... Save me. And like that, they are made well. God is always doing something, but just because we can't sense it doesn't mean it's not real. The last point I will make on perspective is this. When you are wrestling with God, we cannot suffer from religious prejudice. What does that mean? If we prejudge or predefine how we want God to solve our problem based upon our own thoughts, when God actually does act and do something, 
you may miss it. You can't predefine or prejudge how God is going to act because he will do what he will do. Case in point. The life of Jesus Christ. What happened then? God was physically there doing stuff every single day. He was preaching. He was teaching. He was doing miracles. But people missed the facts that God was right in front of them. Why? Because they had already defined who they thought the Messiah would be. They thought he would be a political warlord. So when God actually did come in their reality and was purposefully active all the time, people missed it. We have to gain some perspective. And here's a preview of coming attractions. When we look at what happens in Habakkuk, the entire book, chapters 1 to 3, Habakkuk ends up gaining an insight into God's perspective at the end in chapter 3. And you know what happens? When, he, when God actually reveals to him what God is actually doing, Habakkuk says, God, you're doing too much. Please slow down and have mercy on us. Because his perspective went from narrow and individual to cosmic and divine. You're wrestling with God, gain some perspective. Now, Habakkuk asks God that question, why do you allow evil to exist and not do anything about it in verses 1 to 4? Now, you know what God does? He answers him. Verses 5 to 11, this is God's response. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe it if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers or a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. Habakkuk asks the question, God provides the answer. Here's a synopsis of what we just read. God's answer is this. Actually, Habakkuk, I am doing something. I'm actually doing quite a bit. What I'm doing is something so far out of your mind, even if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe me. And God says, what I'm going to do to judge all of the wickedness that you see around you is I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians who are going to be my instrument of justice. Now let's pause here for a second. 
because if Habakkuk was upset and frustrated at the beginning of his book, now he's going to be more upset and frustrated. Why? Because the Babylonians were the bad guys. The Babylonians weren't angels. They were the bad guys. Habakkuk was a Jew. He was a member of the covenantal people of God. He was supposed to be part of the good guys. So how could God raise up the bad guys? How could he raise up those people? How could he raise up those unclean, uncircumcised Philistines who don't even know God? The text even says the Babylonians, their strength is their God, which means they're in love with themselves. How could God use them to judge us? Isn't that evil for God to use evil to judge evil? Here's the second point. When you are wrestling with God, point number two. Know that the source of evil is not God. Know that the source of evil is not God. When evil seems to triumph for a season, it neither means that God authored it nor looks favorably upon it. Let me say that again. When evil seems to triumph for a season, it neither means that God authored the evil nor does it mean that God looks favorably upon the evil. The bottom line is this. Evil is something separate, is something other, is something alien to God. You have God over here, and evil's way, way, way over on the other side. As Psalm 5-4 says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. So when you are wrestling with God and you appreciate and see evil, people can either make one of two incorrect assumptions. For people who know God, they can see evil and say, God must in some way, shape, or form approve of this because he's not doing anything about it, which, as we just mentioned point number one, is not the case. For people who don't know God, they'll see evil in the world and say, in some way, God must have been the one who authored the evil. God must have been the one who wrote the order for the evil to be enacted in the world. But beloved, we have to understand something. God never has to incite evil because we are perfectly capable of doing that ourselves. God never has to incite evil because the factory for evil is already in the human heart. Church, we all know that if the devil did not exist, sin would still exist. If the devil did not exist, people would still sin. The only thing he does is throw lighter fluid on the fire that burns in our hearts. He tips us over and puts stuff in our way that lures us into more and more sin. But the potential for evil is already built into the human heart. 
But even though sin, evil, wickedness exists in a world that God is in charge of, sin never overrides the sovereignty of God. Yes, evil exists. Yes, sin exists. But all of those things don't change the fact that God is still in charge. And God's sovereignty is never dependent on human behavior. So when God raises up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the evil people from the east, that does not mean that God was the author of the evil. It does not mean that God approved or condoned the violence they would bring. How do we know that? Because verse 11 says that they weren't going to get away with it. The evil that they would do would be judged. Verse 11 says, But they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Beloved, no one ever gets away with sin. God's justice may be delayed, but that does not mean it is denied. It is, in fact, certain. And because God is sovereign, because God is in charge, sin only has two options to be dealt with. Sin must follow God's rules of reconciliation. In eternity, someone has two choices. Option number one is they pay the penalty for their own sin in hell forever, or they have faith in Jesus and accept the free gracious gift that God paid the penalty for sin for us. No one ever gets away with it, and sin cannot override the fact that God is in charge. So Habakkuk asks a question, God answers. Now this is Habakkuk's response to God's answer. Verses 12 to 17. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net. Because though these things, their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continuously slay nations without sparing? Here's the synopsis of what Habakkuk is saying there. Habakkuk asks God a question. God answers the prophet's question. Then Habakkuk basically here says, God, I don't like your plan. I don't agree. 
It doesn't seem to make much sense to me. He says, God, he's confused. He still lacks clarity and meaningful answers. He says, God, why do you look? Why are you silent? Why have you made? Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. So then why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you letting these bad guys come and judge us. Habakkuk is upset because he's wrestling with God, because he's actually holding on to God, because Habakkuk knows deep down inside that he's not going anywhere. And it bothers the godly person when they realize they have a question, they have a struggle, they have something they can't really figure out in their relationship with God, but they also know that walking away isn't an option. I haven't been married for that long, but I've been married long enough. And I mess up far more than my wife. She's a good guy. And sometimes when I do something foolish, she'll get mad at me. But she's even more mad because guess who's going to bed with her that night? Me. Guess who she's going to talk to at breakfast the next morning? Me. We're in this for life. I'm not going anywhere. She's not going anywhere. It would be easy if you could just walk away. Therefore, it's no longer a problem. But when you're in this forever, when you're in this together, when you truly love someone and you will not let them go, no matter how crazy they act, like me, you're upset because you know you're not going to let go. That is part of the crux of the problem. Habakkuk, if Habakkuk is having this much chaos in his mind in trying to figure out life with God, knowing he's sovereign, he doesn't stand a chance if he now turns his back on his sovereign creator. So Habakkuk is still wrestling. Now here is the third point when you are wrestling with God. Know that God's grace is the dividing line for all humanity. When you are wrestling with God, point number three. Know that it's God's grace That is the dividing line for all of humanity. Here's Habakkuk's issue. He says, we're the good guys. We are more deserving. We are more righteous than them. The Babylonians are those people. They're the wrong color. They're not Americans. They're not capitalists. They're the wrong denomination. They believe the wrong stuff. They look funny. They dress funny. They are unclean and unregenerate. How could those people judge us? We are the good guys. We deserve never to fall. We are the good guys. But in God's eyes, there are no good guys. 
in God's eyes, every human being is a bad guy. The only thing that changes is that some bad guys were the free recipients of the unmerited grace of God. I was born 38 years ago in Brooklyn, New York. Did I have any work? Did I do anything to be born in America? Nope. Did I do anything to inherit the facts that my parents both knew God? Nope. What separated me from being born in the middle of nowhere on the other side of the world in a country that's predominantly Muslim or whatever? The answer is the grace of God because I played no role in this environment into which I was born. What separates me from a Nazi? Grace. It's not nature. It's not nurture. It's grace. What separates anyone from being one of those people, the people you abhor the most? The answer is grace. Because in eternity, there's only one distinction that matters. Those who are in Christ or not. Those who are saved or not. Those who are in the church and, or not. And the one who draws that line isn't people. It's God himself. Now, when you understand that, that changes everything. You can no longer look at people and say those pe- and look down on them because there's only one thing separating you from them and it has nothing to do with you. It's the grace of God. Now you realize, my goodness, God is gracious. We are all bad guys and he freely chose to redeem me. Praise be to God. I have to go and tell people about Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you change their politics, if you change how they want to view the economy. It doesn't matter if they're Republican or Democrat. The only thing that matters is if they know God or not, and they are the recipients of God's free grace. Now, when you are wrestling with God, number three, know that God's grace is the dividing line for all of humanity. Here's another fast-forward insight. In the book of Habakkuk, does God's plan ever change? It doesn't. Does anything around Habakkuk change? It doesn't. The person who changes is Habakkuk. He began by asking God, hey God, why don't you do something? He did, and he began by getting into Habakkuk's heart and changing him by making him see and realize that it's God's grace which changes everything. Habakkuk had a problem because he thought God was doing a bad job in handling reality. But what God now does, and this is the the crux of when you are wrestling with God, this is where the rubber meets the road, this is the core of it. God, throughout the book of Habakkuk, gets deep, deep down to Habakkuk's heart. And he asks him one simple question. Habakkuk, do you trust me? But God, you don't understand. There's evil, there's wickedness. Habakkuk, do you really 
Trust me. But God, no, 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 you don't understand. This is special. This is unique. I'm in a very particular situation, and the Babylonians, and they're evil, and we're the coming people. Habakkuk, do you, in your heart of hearts, believe, do you trust that I am God? Because once you embrace the reality that God is God, the wrestling match is over because you trust him. I called it wrestling with God for a reason, because no one can ever wrestle with God and win. We are called not to wrestle with him, but to trust him. But in this case, it is the wrestling which begets a more refined sense of trusting. So what God wants Habakkuk to answer is, do you really trust me? In spite of a world that doesn't make sense, in spite of people, in spite of situations, in spite of circumstances which are less than ideal, do you really, in your heart of hearts, trust me? Beloved, we have to understand something as well. When you are wrestling with God, that doesn't mean in some way you are spiritually deficient. That doesn't in some way mean you are spiritually immature. In fact, wrestling with God is the door, is the introduction to Christianity for grown-ups. How can I say that? Because all saints in the Bible that were tested and tried wrestled with God. Just acts Habakkuk. Just ask Job. Just ask Jacob. Jacob physically wrestled with God an entire night. And it's only after wrestling with God for an entire night, it was then that he was renamed Israel, the covenantal name of God's people. Even God wrestled with God when Jesus sweated blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. That was a physical manifestation of inward turmoil because God was wrestling with God. Beloved, wrestling with God is normal. So if you've wrestled or wrestling or will wrestle with God, congratulations, that is normal. What is also normal is how the godly person responds to that turmoil, and they bring everything directly to God himself. The fourth point is this, when you are wrestling with God. Don't give up on God, because God never gives up on you. James 1-2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because the testing of your faith, wrestling with God, is a trial, meaning it's a test. What is it a test of? Your faith. And God is getting deep, deep down to the core of you, and he wants to know, do you really, 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 in your heart of hearts, in spite of the entire world around you, do you really trust me? And God's purpose, God's intent in allowing that wrestling to happen is to refine you and make you better so you will be perfect, lacking nothing, so that 
you will be complete. As Warren Worsby always says, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. And God's point in the testing is so that you will now have a more resilient, enduring faith with bigger roots so you can now enter into a new era of calm and confidence. You may be broken. Your church may have given up on you. Family may have given up on you. Whatever you had faith in failed you. You are broken. You are sad. You are upset. You've been wrestling now for weeks and months. You are tired and you are hungry. But do not give up on God because God never gives up on you. The book of Habakkuk goes in chapter 1 from gloom, but it ends in glory. When I tell you do not give up on God because he won't give up on you, God led his prophet through the fire. So at the end of his trial, he was singing a love song to God. He refined his heart so now... His faith was stronger than it was before. Let's turn to chapter 3. Habakkuk 3, verses 18 to 19. This is the end result of the wrestling match. And this is a shagion, meaning it's a song meant to be sung to a choir of musical instruments. The prophet says, Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord. In the God of my salvation, the Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high places. Habakkuk began this book stubborn and frustrated. Now he's stubbornly faithful to God. Don't give up on God because he never, ever gave up on you. Fifth point. Final point. When you are wrestling with God, realize that the providence of God only becomes crystal clear with a wide lens. This goes back to my first point, gain some perspective. Point number five. When you're wrestling with God, the providence of God only becomes crystal clear with a wide lens. As finite human beings, there's only but so much we can see right now in the present. So we may gain some answers to some questions in our natural life, but some of those neat and clean answers can only be seen with a bird's eye view of reality. I'm talking over hundreds and thousands of years. Case in point, The dilemma in the book of Habakkuk chapter 1 was that the Babylonians were coming to judge the people of Judah. Habakkuk thought that was evil and there was no good intent. But guess what? When the Babylonians came and conquered the kingdom of Judah, where did the people go? They were exiled. And as a result, they were now forcibly dispersed all over the world. When they were dispersed, did they stop being Jews? They didn't, which means the word of God began to spread. So people became evangelists 
without even knowing it. Like the martyrdom of Stephen in the New Testament, people were being spread far and wide and taking the word of God with them. And on top of that, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the ringleader of the bad guys, a guy who began as being so prideful and arrogant, he made a statue of himself and commanded the entire nation to bow down and worship it. Do you know that in Daniel chapter 4, it sounds like King Nebuchadnezzar got saved? He wouldn't. That wouldn't have happened to him had not God used his hand of providence to bring the Babylonians and the Jews together. This is what Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel 4, 34-37. But at the end of his period of madness, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now the most powerful man in the world at the time is now praising God for humbling him. I can't discern anyone's heart, but it sounds like he got saved. So let's zoom out even farther and look at the grand arc of the Bible story. The Babylonians inflicted judgment on the Jewish people in the kingdom of Judah. God may have exiled the people out of the land, but he never gave up on the people. God enacted judgment, but the point of his judgment was so that he could show the people grace. Because this event in history, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born, was setting things up so that Jesus could come onto the scene. The point I'm making is that God always demonstrates his grace through judgment. If you were at the cross 2,000 years ago and you saw Jesus hanging there on the cross and someone told you this is God's plan to redeem the world, Someone would say, that is Looney Tunes. That is crazy. This guy who's hanging up there dying, they would say, behold, look, wonder. This doesn't make any sense. But the reason why God allowed himself to come into this world and unleashed the full fourth of his wrath on his son is so that now anyone who professes faith in the son will be saved God judged his son so that now he can treat us with grace. It is grace through judgment. But that only became crystal clear when someone took a step back and saw everything that God was doing from the very beginning. When God said, let there be light, he had the cross already written. And the only thing that differs between Habakkuk and us 
is that Habakkuk could look forward to what God would do in anticipation of the Messiah. We now can look back and look at what God already did for us. God already solved the sin and evil problem at Calvary 2,000 years ago. I'll close by saying this. When we are wrestling with God, although we may not understand why things are happening the way they are, we find confidence to understand that it is never our calling to understand why. It's never our calling to be omniscient, to have explanations for everything. And thank God for that. Thank God he's the omniscient one, and he's the one who deals with reality knowing everything. What we are called to do is find comfort in the one who is in total, complete control. For as Habakkuk 2.4 says, it does not say the righteous will live by explanations. It does not say the righteous will live by feeling good all the time. It does not say the righteous will live by having it the way you want it every single day. It says the righteous will live by his faith. So if you are wrestling with God, now that you know, now that you embrace the biblical facts that God is in complete and total control, here's the question I want you to ask yourself. Do you really, do you really trust God? God bless you. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadafo. For more valuable resources, please visit WCSK.org. Until next time. Peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.